Now snow must surely be one of nature's most elegant creations. Hmm. Which means we should do something with it. Such as... Well, here. Think about how roses are elegant and, and how you might give them to someone that you really care about. So here's an idea. If you live in a northern climate, stop what you're doing right now and go and make a snowball and throw it at someone that you care about. It could be a really magical moment. You think about all of the particles of water that have frozen into those amazing crystals and 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 you make a whole bundle of them and and give it to someone what an amazing creation of beauty i expect that everyone who's listening uh today will probably have stood in a snowstorm at some point or other and have watched the silent falling of of all those millions of snowflakes uh, making their descent from the sky to the ground. And even if your neighbor has a pile of junk that covers half an acre and is an eyesore that the entire community is trying to deal with and get him to clean up, that blanket of snow can even make that into something beautiful. But have you ever stood in a snowstorm at the edge of the sea? Have you watched all those millions of perfect six-sided crystals falling from the sky not to fulfill the snowflake pact of turning the entire world white, but to be lost in a vain descent straight into that massive body of water that covers most of our planet. I've wondered, if you wade out and and look real close, when one of those flakes touches the water, does it linger for one fraction of a second, holding that beauty for a flash, kind of like the one ring in the fires of Mount Doom? Or does it vanish instantly, too quick for the human eye to possibly detect at the moment of impact? It makes you want to wade out, to reach out, to let one of those flakes fall on your glove, to save it, to admire it, to hold on to it, to to, to freeze the inevitable that inevitable destruction lest something of such beauty and unique creativity be lost.
You are listening to Landfall. Welcome to Landfall Radio. I am Barnabas. I'll be hosting your show today, and you're going to have to forgive me if I (coughs) cough a few times through the show. I picked up some really nasty bug about... Man, it's been a month ago almost. Maybe more than a month. And even though I completely kicked all the nasty symptoms... A few weeks ago, this cough just lingers on and on and on, and I drank a concoction of honey water and lemon before I came on the show today, but you'll have to forgive me if I uh, go off on one of those coughing fits. But thank you so much for listening. It means so much to me, and I really hope that every one of you who's tuning in has has been having a wonderful day and is just... Uh, just enjoying your life. Because I know that I had so much fun yesterday. This winter on the Kenai, I'm telling you, has been something else. We've been having snow, cold, I mean winter, unlike anything that we've seen for the past several years, with the past several years being such disappointing mud and rain and warm and uh and this winter has been something else i've been having the time of my life and can't really remember all the fun that i was having yesterday because i have a notoriously bad memory and why am i alone here in this recording studio because what i really need right now is some little kid to be able to mimic uh, Dory from Finding Nemo. <clears throat> I, uh, I suffer from short-term memory loss. I, 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 I suffer from... Sure, I shouldn't even attempt it myself. <laughs> what was I saying? <laughs> I'm not really that bad. I do have a hard time with names and details of faces. I have a hard time remembering what I was doing when I got up from my desk and headed down the stairs. One thing that happens is that I leave loose bills in my pockets all the time. I've run so many 20s through the wash, not even to mention all the 5s and the 1s and the coins... It almost feels like I'm earning a earning a living this way. My the laundry goes through the wash, I go through the pockets, I find all my money. It's wonderful and then I have to stop and remember, wait a second. I worked long hours to earn that money. One time I remember I found almost what was it, almost a hundred dollars. And that felt felt amazing until Again, I remembered, hmm, yeah, that money didn't just spontaneously generate, and only the federal government is able to spontaneously generate money. And all the experts say that they're going to phase it away. 
that we're going to become a cashless society very soon. The days of cash are numbered. They say it's a dying form of tender. And to me, it's both easy and hard to imagine what a society like that would look like. Because in my time, fiat cash, uh, backed only by the faith of the federal government, that's been the pillar of our financial system. It's been the pillar of our financial system for generations before me. And if you think back even further to how cash and coin was backed by uh, precious metals, that form of tender has been going on for, goodness, generations before our nation was even founded. It's been the pillar of Western finances. But on the other side, today we all use our credit cards and some places in the country are trending more toward even more digitized transactions. We've got Google Wallet out there and Apple Pay and thinking about thinking about making the jump into that myself, but haven't quite made it over there yet. Got to study all the potential concerns and pitfalls that might accompany that. I I don't know why I'm so concerned. I did have everything uh, discovered with regards to my credit card information one time and somebody was robbing me but such is the such is the problem with digitization of currency of course people could come and steal a whole wad of cash in times past things don't change all that much there are those out there who say that we're all going to end up with implants which we will be uh privilege to receive in our wrist or finger or somewhere else and all we'll have to do to pay is swipe our hand over something and give a thumbprint or something like that and it sounds really scary to me in fact if i can go down a rabbit trail it kind of brings up a nightmare situation because i can imagine i can imagine a day where you know, for health reasons, you're only allowed to have a certain amount of really unhealthy food. And I might drive up into McDonald's and I can no longer go in there with a wad of germy cash and hand it over anonymously and say, I want one Big Mac and three large sodas. But I go in there and I make my order and I swipe my chip and and the guy's like, oh, no, Mr. Firth, you've exceeded your limit for large Cokes. Your monthly quota is mandated by the Health and Social Services. Still permits you a Big Mac, but we're going to have to interest you in this green juice uh, smoothie for a drink. And of course, I'll be like, no, you can't interest me in that green sludge. I want my Coke. Come on. And this will probably... This world will probably create a system of black market bartering. Uh, I could imagine this situation even further. I'm in the drive-thru and I'm, man, I just want those Cokes. And so I, I'm like, here, here, just take this bag and, and give me the Cokes. Oh, what's in the bag, sir? What in, uh, is this, is this Tom Brady's jersey from... Super Bowl 51 that somebody stole? How in the world did you... 
Ah, uh, I don't want to know. Uh, yeah. Okay, here's the Cokes. Just take them, take them and be gone. Now, I assure you that future will never happen. I can guarantee it 100%. Because I didn't steal that jersey. You know, when cash goes away, muggings are going to get a lot harder. No wallet, no ID. What's going to be inside a purse? Uh... I guess all that women will be carrying in their purses anymore will be makeup products. Some crook will go to jail in New York and all the inmates will be like, so what are you in here for, pal? And he'll be like, oh, I pulled a gun on some rich-looking lady and I stole her purse. But as opposed to the old days where they'd be like, well, what did you need the money for? Food? Drugs? Well, <laughs> those days will be gone. The inmate will tell that story and it'll be an instant reaction like, You stole makeup? You turn your man card in right now, buddy. You remember those special banks we all used to have as children? When we started collecting our very first coins. Now some of our parents gave allowances to help us begin to understand money. Others of our parents made us do work in order to get the treasured coins. But we would start building uh, a fortune of small coins and small bills in our banks. And for me, my proverbial piggy bank was a really, really old uh, little plastic bank that was fashioned like a safe. And it even had a little combination lock that you had to have the code to unlock and open. And it was given to me by, by my great-grandmother. And considering it was the oldest thing that I owned, I remember watching the Antiques Roadshow that used to be on TV. I might still be on TV, I don't know. But I would watch that show and I would hope that maybe the show would come to our town Fairbanks, Alaska, so that I would be able to present my treasure and find out that it was an antique that was worth a fortune. Now I realize all these years later that this little bank doesn't hold any value, but it was my version of that iconic piggy bank that in the near future it may not be even known among children. There's still a $1 bill in that little bank of mine that I never spent. It's not got any really special story behind it. Nothing really amazing, but I won it at a church event. We were playing that old game, Finding a Needle in a Haystack, where there would be all sorts of treasures hidden within the haystack, and all the children would pile into the haystack. There were probably a dozen or a couple dozen children, and they would be pulling out candy and coins and little treasures, 
but there were these paper cutouts, probably about 10 of them if I remember correctly, of different shapes and sizes. And that was all that I wanted to find. Because if you found one of those paper cutouts, you could match it to a bill over on the table where the person who was running the whole thing uh, was sitting. And you might be able to find yourself the winner of a one or a five or even a $10 bill. And that was all I wanted. I passed by the candy. I passed by the coins. I passed by the trinkets. I was looking for those shapes of paper. And one by one, they were being found. And I was getting real jealous and I was getting real upset. I didn't have anything. Other kids had bags full of candy and coins. And some kids were finding the slips of paper that was all I was looking for. And and finally, I found one. And I got so excited, I jumped out of the pile and I ran over to the table and I turned it in. And it matched a $1 bill. They handed me a good old George Washington. And I was really jealous of those, those kids that had piles of candy as well as shapes that were matched up to $10 bills. And yet, that bill went into my safe. And I never spent it. And I wonder, what will the children of tomorrow, what will make them search through those haystacks? looking for that value, looking for that treasure? What will give them the desire that I felt that day? As you look at a, at a bill, a piece of cash from the United States of America, you see a quote that has been controversial through its history. The motto, in God we trust. And the vast majority of Americans have long held that to be precious, that we have that on our money. Some elected officials have objected to it, certain groups have. One prominent president who objected to it was Teddy Roosevelt. And if you look it up and look at his argument, he used... He used the words irreverent and sacrilegious. He said it, to have this, to have the name of God on our money, which can be used for such evil and is used on a daily basis for such evil. He said that that's irreverent and sacrilegious. To have money, which has so much potential, bearing the name of God, was unsettling to Roosevelt, and he was not even one of our more religious presidents. The anonymity that, that cash provides, the simple power that it holds, it lends itself to billions of dollars of evil practices and fraud and theft every year. Those who push to move on from cash hope that 
Perhaps some of that wrong can be prevented in a cashless society. I personally don't know. I don't know that anything will change. Because people find new ways to defraud and to steal and to fund evil things. But there is a side to the anonymity and to that power of cash that is good. I mean, who among us has not slipped a bill to a stranger who needed it? I was surfing Netflix the other day, and I came across this movie called The Impossible. And it stars uh, Naomi Watts, I believe, and Ewan McGregor. And it's the true story of a European family who got caught in a beachside resort in Thailand when those massive tsunamis of 2004 plowed into the coasts of the Indian Ocean following that massive earthquake off the coast of Indonesia. And they were swept away by the wave, but they managed to survive it. And it's an incredible story. I was intrigued by the true story part of it. But I didn't know if I wanted to watch it, considering that I have this pathological fear of ocean depths and of the power of massive waves, possibly induced by the fact that I, I am somewhat susceptible to motion sickness and have had some bad episodes on the ocean. And I didn't really know if I wanted to watch a very lifelike tsunami plowing, uh, leveling villages across the state of Thailand. See that horrible spectacle on the, on the screen. Didn't know if I wanted to watch that, but yet that movie and seeing that story sparked a memory. It's a memory of a very insecure boy who long ago when those tsunamis hit the other side of the world, he had very little cash to speak of. You see, $20 was a lot to him back then. But when this boy saw the devastation of South Asia on the news, he scraped together $170 in cash. He had real insecurities at the time. He was so insecure about giving away that sum of money that he sent an envelope of assorted cash bills of the amount of $170 to a relief agency. And he included a small unsigned note with the cash that simply said, For Tsunami Victims. I don't even remember if he wrote a return address on that envelope. Of course, that boy was me. And I can't know where that money went. Of course, I had never heard. I can only hope that it... that it was used somewhere to mend something that needed restored. The power of cash. Today, I use my credit card for everything now. 
And as I said before, I'm pondering making the plunge into Apple Pay or one of the other digital um, possibilities that are out there. But I'll always remember the insecurity of that, of that boy, that younger me, that very different me, and the power that anonymous cash gave that boy to help better the world. I have an old camera buried somewhere. I don't even know where it is. I suddenly, off the top of my head, had an idea of where I think it might possibly be, but I, I really don't know. I didn't go looking for it. But I have this camera, this old film camera that I received right at exactly at the age where it made me feel, oh, so superior. I mean, if I was sightseeing somewhere and I saw someone who didn't have a camera and was unable to document the wonders that they were seeing, <laughs> well, cameras with film? Who remembers those these days? Unless you're as old as I am, and I am not all that old shows how fast the world changes. But you all remember the, the, the ropes that went along with film cameras. You were limited on space. 24 pictures was generally your, your limit. Some rolls of film had more, some less. But 24 was generally my limit for my camera. And you had to observe that limit. That was what you had to work with. And it's different from today, where you may hear someone holler somewhere in a park, What? I'm already out of memory space? How many pictures do I have on here? Only 1,100? I mean, what cheap card does this camera have? Not so. Back in those old days when you had 24 and you had to know it. And you would never know how uh, a poor uh, a representation of, of the subtle splendor that you were trying to capture. You'd never know how that camera would provide it until weeks later. Because you'd have to wait for development. And today you might hear someone outside grumbling... I just can't do the sunset justice. I've taken dozens of pictures on every stinking setting that my camera has, and I just can't get it. But back in the ancient days of, oh, 20 years ago, you'd see an amazing sight. Say you were walking in your garden, and you pass a, a tomato, and it's a beautiful tomato it's luscious and it's red and it's and it stands out and so you pull out your camera 
and you find just the right angle and just the right lighting and you snap that picture. And then you have to wait. And a couple months later, you would go and you'd pick up the developed photos from Walmart or your local development uh, place and you'd be flipping through them out in the car. You'd see the vacation photos and you'd smile at the pictures and you'd smile at the pictures of the dog getting hit with a water balloon and there'd always be those ubiquitous birthday shots from some friend or one of your kids. And then you'd get to this photo and you'd wonder, why on earth did I take this poor, blurry photo of a tomato? What on earth was I thinking? But you had one chance. You had one chance. And then you had to wait. I was driving along uh, the Cook Inlet's Turnigan Arm, which is just south of the city of Anchorage here in Alaska. I was driving with a family and we spotted a pod of Cook Inlet belugas, which are, it's always a, a real treat to see those. And so we screeched into a pull-off and I whipped out my camera. Now, first of all, beluga whales are white. So they're very difficult to immediately distinguish from ocean whitecaps. You have to be watching real carefully and it's like, Oh, there, oh no, that's just a white, oh, there, oh no, that's just a white cap. Oh, there's a real one. There's a real one. Because it made a blow. So. You know, we'd sit there and watch. And I would whip my camera out. And I remember whipping it out this one time and as we were watching the beluga whales going off into the distance and they're getting further away as I'm trying to get my camera ready. And I uh, open it up and I get the telephoto moved out just to the right uh, distance so that I am able to see the area where they are pretty close. And then I find, I'm watching through the camera and I finally spot one and it's just coming up. And so I carefully center it in the, in the, in the field of vision and I push the shutter halfway down to focus it and it's just going underwater and I snap the picture and you know how that shutter it's like it takes half a second from when you push it down to where you hear the snap and so I wondered did I get it did I get it did I get it of course it was gonna take me another month or two before I would find out unless of course I found it important enough to take 17 aimless photos of a squirrel feeding at the feeder outside the window or or a whole pile of photos of uh i don't know trying to capture a bat in midair that i was throwing up uh, you know you've all been there you've taken those useless useless photos just using up the film because there were a couple pictures on there that you really wanted to see You've all been there. Well, anyway, I went in a little while later, got all my pictures developed, and I'm flipping through them in the parking lot, all excited. And there it was. A shot of the ocean 
with a circular ripple mark. There really was something about the film camera that was lost as we moved to the digital age. And as I think about it, maybe it's that period of waiting that made every single photo more special. And I remember a time when my best childhood friend once did an unbelievable act of kindness to me, and he gave me the largest pumpkin that he had ever grown. He grew pumpkins every year for some strange reason in Fairbanks, Alaska. And they never turned out like uh, the squash that someone from Illinois or Indiana would envision a pumpkin being. Someone from down there would wonder, what is this small green thing? But even though it was small and green, it was, it was, it was his best. It was the best he'd ever done. And he gave it to me. And before we chopped it up and turned it into pie, I, I ran upstairs and I grabbed my trusty camera and I snapped a photo. And a professional photographer would definitely try to have all future uh, picture-taking privileges revoked from me on account of this one. Because there the pumpkin lies on a dirty floor surrounded by old cardboard boxes and debris... And there is no attempt in that photo to make it look like anything more than an extremely sorry little green squash. I don't remember the pie. I don't remember how it tasted. But weeks later, when I was flipping through my developed film, I found that photo. And... All that that one snapshot represented came back to me. It was not a great photo. It was taken with absolutely no thought of environment or lighting or anything else that a professional could, could give me a few tips on. But I think out of the entire roll of pictures that I took, out of that roll of 25 or 24, I believe that that was the only picture that made it into my permanent photo album. I recently heard that there's an interesting movement in some school photography classes where they're actually using old film cameras for art projects. And I can imagine the kids these days being like, what is this complex contraption? And what do you mean I just ruined the picture by popping the camera open? I'm, I'm happy to hear that some schools are doing this. There was something about the way that you had one chance at a time. And you had to try and get it right. And of course you only had 24 chances total. And then there was something about the wait and the anticipation that made it all the more special. Recently, my amazing photographer friend, Katie, took a series of professional shots for my portfolio. 
and I was shocked as I'd never really been in a solo professional shoot before. I mean, that shutter of hers just kept going and going like it was glued down or something. Whoa, 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 whoa. But then, of course, she got to go back and she got to look through all of those hundreds of photos and discard a whole bunch of throwaway, worthless photos and and make some real treasures out of the few that, that captured the moment perfectly. You see, her ability to bring out the very best is so much stronger now than it was. That old film camera of mine, it's buried. Somewhere. I don't know where. But I remember. I remember that it has a nearly used up role inside it. From the end of its time, many years ago when I switched to digital. I didn't take the final few photos. I I set the camera aside and it got buried. Never had it developed. I've actually found that camera from time to time over the years. And I've still never had that film developed. Now there are only a few facilities in the United States that will even do it. I honestly have absolutely no idea what is on that camera? It's an unopened gift of the past. It's probably holding many throwaways, perhaps some real treasures. It's like a time capsule. It's a dead tool of a life past holding its last memories. I just was able to watch the GoPro footage that I was given. On the slopes of Alieska Ski Resort in Girdwood, Alaska, the film showed the field of vision of a good friend of mine. I found a place on the footage where he carefully swung to a sliding halt midway down a slope and turned around, just in time to catch an Excellent shot of another good buddy of mine wiping out on the slope above him. It was a nice, clean fall. A lot of laughing ensued, and then buddy number one, who had the camera, suddenly says, Where's Barnabas? And the camera stares up in vain to the slopes above, and buddy number two is getting back up, and he says, I don't know, I thought he was right behind me. All of a sudden, I come into view. I had recovered from a fall that they hadn't seen, and I was now plummeting down the slope straight. Now I'm downhill skiing, and I'm going straight. I'm picking up far too much speed, and I race past the field of vision, 
and the GoPro camera, woo, pans around and follows me as I go past. Oh no, says Buddy 2. Oh, this doesn't look good, uh, Buddy 1 says. You can see that I start to wobble, and then all of a sudden it looks like a bomb goes off. Skis shoot one way, ski poles shoot the other, and it all is, is centered around this massive blast of white powder that erupts in the center of the flying ski equipment. The camera mounted to Buddy One's headgear begins a mad dash, 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 dash down to the site of the explosion. And there I am, lying there, deprived of my gear and half buried, laughing. What a wonderful day! I had been feeling ill that day, and quite frankly, I did not want to go skiing. I'd never been downhill skiing before, despite putting in countless hours of cross-country skiing. Still, as an Alaskan, that's almost a crime. And so two of my really good friends who were wanting to go, they talked to me and they talked to me about it, and they finally got me excited enough that even though I've been dealing with some health concerns and that particular day I wasn't feeling my best, we went. We uh, got up early and made the 170-mile journey north for a full day of mayhem on the slopes. Now these friends, they're good compared to me, but you might not call them experts. And when I arrived at the, at the uh, rental desk, the girl who was giving out the gear handed me my gear after taking my, uh, my foot measurements, and she asks me if I, if I have any experience, and so I have to admit that I'm a, a complete novice who's never been downhill skiing before in my life. So she looks up and she goes, oh, do you want the, the training package then? Do you want the training class? And I'm thinking, well, number one, I'm thinking, I wonder how much that costs. And number two, I'm thinking, I want to get on the slopes with my buddies. I don't want somebody going, now put your foot here, now put your foot here. I just want to get out there and do it, okay? So I point back to my friends and I say, no, I, I'm with some really experienced guys right over there. And she glances over and looks very reassured and checks me out. Uh, gives me my skis and signs the paperwork and off I go. So we hit the so-called uh, Bunny Hill, as they call it. We hit that one first. And the Bunny Hill features a number of rather easy runs. Although to me, who had never been downhill skiing before, they looked like death plunges. I mean, I'm on flat skidding devices that have no brakes. And I'm looking down a, a sharp descent. It looks like death to me. So Buddy One tried his best to train me, keep an eye on where Buddy Two was, and make sure to capture all of my mistakes on film all at once. So we spent a good couple of hours there on the bunny hill. And there's a point. 
there's a point at which a, in which a total novice comes to where the skis cease to be cumbersome growths that virtually guarantee you a hospital trip, which is how it feels at the start. And instead they become graceful tools that allow you to become one with the mountain. There's that point where you begin to feel the flow of the slope. And you see the chute, and it's got its bumps, and it's got its curves. And you're going down it, and you just know. And you turn, and you curve, and you smoothly fly through and over. And, and it becomes so fun and so exhilarating that after three hours, you desperately try to push aside that gnawing hunger that's reminding you that you really need calories. And you're telling yourself, who needs lunch? We only have eight hours out here on these slopes. I want every minute out here. This is so fun. But the three of us finally broke for lunch. Pretty late in the day. The resort was to close in a couple hours when we got back. And the others wanted to go all the way to the very top of the mountain. There are no beginner routes from the very top of the mountain. But you don't pay that much money for nothing, right? You don't pay that much money to go there and stay on the bunny hill and settle, right? So I said, sure. And I, I found myself seated on that high lift, bound for the highest point on the mountain. You encounter interesting people on these lifts. You're stuck with up to three other strangers for up to ten minutes, all packed together on this lift, soaring high uh, above the slopes as you slowly make your way up the mountain. But the good thing is, these people are here to have fun. They're here to have a really great day, so they're outgoing, they're fun, they tell you stories about their lives, it's amazing, you make friends, you are holding on to your gear so you can't exchange cards and you're never going to see them again, but it's wonderful. Well, there, there actually was one real grouch, but that's pretty good ratio. People are there to have fun, it's a lot of fun. We get to the top of the mountain. And the scenery up there was breathtaking. Mountain ranges and the ocean lay out before us. And it, and it gave us this top of the world feeling. I pulled out my camera and I snapped some pictures. And I was so excited. And then I remembered that I was up there to go down. And so I looked down. And the slopes were not just illusions. They were literally twice as steep and narrow as anything that I had been on down below that I'd been feeling like I was mastering. What's worse? They stretched out of sight. I mean, we're on the top of the mountain. So the three of us gathered around, and we looked this way, and we looked that, and we took a vote on which route looked the safest. 
And then we gathered together in a circle and we all held our ski poles out and we clacked them together in some sort of salute before taking the plunge. Other skiers and snowboarders around us were sending us strange looks as we were performing this ritual. And it probably never crossed their mind that this was a complete novice with no experience getting ready to make his first plunge off the top of a mountain. There's only one way down. A few minutes later, I was half buried, only about a hundred yards down the slope from the top. I'd already wiped out about six times in pretty majestic fashion that is all captured on GoPro footage. I decided to take a bit of a breather before getting back up. This is hard, I suddenly decided. I looked up and a small figure came over the top and slowly made its way down. It was wobbling, but it was perfectly executing curves with enough force to remain at a reasonable speed. The figure materialized into a bundled-up little girl of probably about seven years of age. She carefully approached and slid to a stop beside me. I looked up from under snow, my arms and legs sticking out of the snow at strange angles. She nodded shyly at me. I... I'll wait for you if you like, she said. I'd have bought ten boxes of scout cookies from her on the spot if she was doing that sort of thing, up on top of a mountain. Thank you, I said. Uh, you just go along. I'll probably be here for a little bit. She smiled and continued her methodical descent, not once faltering. Half an hour later, I reached the bottom, sore and battered and having had the thrill of a life. Darkness was beginning to fall at this time, and the slopes were lighting up with the lighter rays that stretch all the way up the mountain, a beautiful sight that I've, I've seen but I've never skied under. I found myself in the lift with a middle-aged woman. She spoke of her home state of New Hampshire and the beauty of the fall season. I told her I wanted to visit during that particular season. I told her of my dream to create a podcast which might capture cultural life moments, which might give voice to people and stories from all over the country Stories that uplift and connect and tell the timeless truths that America was built upon. She got a faraway look in her eye, and she was quiet for a moment. Then she told me how she had completed a full career as an air traffic controller in New Hampshire, and she was already retired at her age and was looking for career number two. What I want to do is write, she said. But I don't know how. 
because I want to write stories of depth and purpose and meaning. And how will they go anywhere? How will they go anywhere in this age? I said, the age of Twitter? And she nodded. She said, I think, I think the good stories are being forgotten for this minute-to-minute rapid-fire blurbs of information, for this shallowness. She said, I think the desire for something deep, for something meaningful, for something that lasts, it's dying. I thought for a moment, and I looked at her and I said, You know human nature does not change. We can be there because people will remember one day. We can use the tools of tomorrow and we can make the depth. We can can infuse it with the meaning. The people of my generation. She kind of laughed and (laughs) the millennials... I nodded. Yes, I'm a millennial. I said, the people of my generation and the people who come after, they will need it. And they will want it again someday. And we have to be there. We were riding directly over a slope on the bunny hill. And below us, I observed a father He was holding his little daughter at the top of the slope. And we passed right over and I could hear her crying, I can't, Daddy, I can't. And the father said, well, then I'll hold you. And we watched as he carefully went over the slope with her, holding her. He matched her ski moves to his in every turn. She wobbled. And he held her up. She tried to make a turn and missed it. And he caught her and guided her ski to his. And then she turned again and she did it perfectly. Just like that, he said, just like that. And she smiled and he let her go. And she shrieked and I gasped. And then that little girl bent her knees and mimicked the move that he had taught her and made that turn. She picked up a little bit of speed and she tried it again and she made the next turn. They were falling behind us now as the lift that we were in moved on up the mountain. But I... And I imagine everyone else on that entire slope could hear that father cheering at the top of his lungs for the tiny little girl, for his girl, taking on the slope by herself, with his training, with an ever-increasing confidence.
At this very moment, it's snowing outside here. And that's as it should be for this time of year. Our amazing creator gifted us with the beauty of winter to enjoy and to marvel at. And I think a whole lot of people around here are thankful for having enough snow this year to be able to play on their snow machines and the skis and, of course, wood stoves and in-floor heating make winter a lot more enjoyable as well, a lot more easier to get through. Go and stand on a winter beach if you can. Go and wade into the slushy water as the snow falls around you. I have observed that blizzards on the beach tend to involve wind on every day, well, on every day except the 31st of February. If you catch a still moment, reach out and catch one of those flakes. Admire the beauty of that which was passing so fast. Admire the, the grandeur of that which is just about to end forever. And smile, because more is falling, new is coming, and it will forever. It's very different it will be different, and yet in many ways so similar. And so, hold out your hand and let it drop.